The presenting sponsor of The Audible is Trader Joe's. Inside Trader Joe's is a five-part podcast series that takes you literally inside Trader Joe's. Go inside the TJ's tasting panel, travel to wineries in Napa Valley, and around the world to discover the next great Trader Joe's products. Discover why they wear those super fashionable Hawaiian shirts. You'll find Inside Trader Joe's on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. Happy to be back home on a Monday morning after a very hectic travel weekend, at least for me. Bruce, you at least stayed somewhat close to home. I did. We had USC at Stanford, so that was a, a manageable trip. Uh, I have to ask, because I saw pictures of what looked like a monsoon in the state of Texas. As our listeners know by now, you are not a very good driver. Please tell me. That's your Max, opinion. That's everybody's opinion. Please tell me that Max Olson took the wheel on this trip. No, I did the majority of the driving. Oh, Jesus. It was my rental car. I will say there was one moment where we were in track. It was going smoothly, and then suddenly there's a backup, and you slam on the brakes. Oh, and Jesus. And this rental car I had, I've never had this kind before, and I actually don't remember what it was. Maybe a Kia? It like had one of those things where the brake or just like does it itself. It took over. It was really, uh, it was like the car was possessed for a minute there. But no, look, I got us there in one piece. It actually, for, for this double header that we did, it couldn't have worked out any better all the way around. First of all, the Houston game was such a blowout by halftime that we just left and not risk, you know, cutting it too close. So we actually got there just fine. There was very little traffic going to College Station. In terms of the rain, it rained sporadically, but it never affected. We were never caught in it, and it never delayed the game. So you can't ask for anything more than that. I feel like the next time I see see Max, he's going to look like Steve Martin with a head full of white hair, and he'll go, "Yeah, I was a passenger in Stu's car in bad weather." Uh, well, I'll tell you what, you guys can commiserate over that. You can you can judge my driving on the side, but uh, you know we end up seeing a pretty good game there in College Station. Yeah, so let's let's get into this. So I, I'll be honest. I saw very little of that game because it's close to close to our game, uh, timing wise. Where do you feel? Are, do you feel more convinced that Jimbo Fisher is eventually going to get maybe sooner than later Texas A and M to an SEC title, or is it just the Saban factors there? And it's like, okay, this was a, this was good. It's good for a passionate fan base, but it's still such an uphill climb. I'm not ready to put all my chips into the table. I I think it was the best moral victory I've, I've ever covered. They were chanting his name as he ran off the field after losing, you know, what seemingly was a heartbreaker that came down to a two point conversion at the end. I'll tell you what. A&M fans. Better, better, more, better moral victory than Charlie Weiss' Bush push game and almost beating a, a, well, a USC team that was even better than the Clemson team? The difference there is that Charlie, you know, Jimbo already Charlie has Weiss his, never won us. Yeah, you're right. Charlie Jimbo Weiss already has his $75 million. Charlie, Charlie Weiss made a lot of money off that moral victory. I'll tell you what. You go to a game there, and you get it. It's as big time an atmosphere for a college football game as you're going to get from, from the tailgate. Is that your first the, game there? No, I, and it's not my first game there, but it was my first game in the new stadium, which is enormous. I mean, I'm not sure I've ever... It's 105,000, so it's not like that's the only stadium in the country of that capacity, but it's just it just goes straight up into the air, and the press box is at the very top. 
you feel like you're on a mountain somewhere. It's, as you know, if you've been to a game there, if you've been in the press box, mm-hmm. it sways or it feels like it sways when it's rocking. And it's just, it's just a, it's just a beautiful stadium. So you can see why, if you were a fan of this school, you would think, and, and you get Jim Fisher, why can't we, you know, play with the best? Uh, he's certainly recruiting at that level. I think why this game felt different is Kellen Mond. Here, here's a guy who, you know, was not particularly great as a true freshman thrown into action. And then it wasn't even certain coming into the season that he would win the job. He was under constant pressure, obviously, from, from Cleveland Farrell and Dexter Lawrence and all those guys. And he just had himself a game. Through for 430 yards, he had many others that were, you know, drop passes that it could have been even more. Of course, he also narrowly avoided some interceptions. I had doubts going into this season that Jimbo, who is a, you know, traditionally a total pro-style guy, could, uh, could, could you know, put out an offense that would, would suit players like him and others who are recruited to a spread offense, and he absolutely did. So credit to him for that. We'll, we'll see. You know, they're going to play Alabama in, the, in two weeks. They're going to play Auburn, LSU, Ole Miss. We'll see uh, how this turns out this season. But I do think the future is bright in College Station. You have a little buyer's remorse on. Did you? I, I know I had Clemson running the table in the ACC. Where are you with them? I think I picked them to lose once, but I certainly have them in the playoff. Where am I with Clemson? You know, obviously it would be hard to watch that game and not come away a little concerned with their secondary. But then you look at their schedule. Who who on that schedule is capable of beating them uh, until probably November? So not too too concerned. I am curious. I mean, who would have said that Syracuse was capable of beating them last year, though? They may be, you're a big Eric Dungy fan. They might be there. They're I going am a to big Death Eric Valley Dungy in a couple fan. weeks. They may be able to pull that off. I mean, they love to throw the ball, and that secondary struggled, to say the least. No, my question with Clemson is the same one that we already had. How long, realistically, like how many times have you seen a team, and, and Florida comes to mind with um, Leak and Tebow, win a championship while playing two quarterbacks the entire way? Because right now, if, if you thought Trevor Lawrence was going to just take this thing and run with it from here and oh, Kelly Bryant won them that game the other night. He played very well. He ended up playing most of the, they They rotated back and forth, but he ended up playing most of the game late. But I don't think that means they're going to bench Trevor Lawrence. I think they're going to continue to rotate the two of them probably all season. Uh, look, if I, I, I get the feeling that if anybody can kind of manage it, it's the Dabo Sweeney has two offensive coordinators. It just feels like the tone around the program is very collegial. Maybe you got you got Brent Venables, who is a touted defensive coordinator, probably could have gotten a head coaching job by now, but just is very, very happy in this situation. I was going to say comfortable, but I think it's even more than that. And so I think that dynamic where everything doesn't seem like it's life and death there kind of bodes well for managing that situation. Yeah, that's true. It's a lot different than certainly the way Dabo, certainly the way Dabo is handling questions about this is a lot different than the way. Nick Saban's handling ones about his two-quarterback system. He just doesn't seem all that worried about it. Neither do the quarterbacks themselves. Neither do the offensive coordinators. So if they can make it work, they can make it work. Anyway, I don't know why they don't... Nothing against Clemson. They're still very talented. But I'm ready to just shut it down. Fast forward to the Alabama-Georgia National Championship game. Nobody else is going to touch those two teams, right? Well, you never know, Stu. <laughs> I'm, like ki- I'm kidding. Yeah. I'm kidding. That's where, this is where the fun part kicks in. So, but that was a heck of a performance by Georgia. No doubt, no doubt. Um, look, that was my upset I picked in the preseason, and you watched it, and I got to see a lot of that game. 
and just you. When I talked to uh, Will Muschamp last Sunday or Monday, whenever I think it was a Sunday, you know, I, we talked about what he had noticed from the program that really kind of wowed him. And it may have been like after team speed, the next thing he said was massive offensive line. And until that game, you know, I kind of knew that uh, Jim Chaney and Sam Pittman had a had an impressive group up there. But just I think that's the thing that that you take away is just just a dominant group. And I think that Jake Fromm did have one bad ball, but otherwise, I mean, that's not an easy place to play. And again, this was a point of emphasis for South Carolina was we have to be competitive with them in the run game. And every year for three years in a row, it's like they get out rushed to 75 to 50 and you can't compete if you can't get that closer. I mean, they try to do more RPO stuff and it just, I just think there's a talent gap. And to me, the talent gap there is between good and great. And I think Georgia right now is great. And I think South Carolina is good, which is better than it has been quite often, but it's just, to me, they're all playing for second in the SEC East right now. Yeah, and uh, with Seth Emerson wrote this for our site about he covers Georgia. You know that team last year made it to the national championship game, and it was still really at the core Mark Rick's recruits. Now this is primarily a roster that Kirby Smart built, and it's just really impressive how they they I don't want to say they reinvented themselves because at the core it's still the same power offense, but there's just so much speed. There's so many guys on their offense that can that can break a 75-yard touchdown. Last year's team, it was basically still run the ball with Chubb and Michelle, pass sparingly. Jake Fromm did a great job. Now they can just beat you from anywhere on the field. So that team is really good. I don't have any doubts about that. Alabama obviously still very good as well. Now going to the other coast, takeaways from the 17-3 to Stanford win over USC. Did I see that's the lowest points USC has scored against anybody in a long, long time? Against Stanford in like 70 years. I was like 75 years or something crazy like that. For me, just seeing it at field level, there right now there's a ton of panic in the USC fan base over Clay Helton and just, just not really almost no big plays from that USC offense where there is some firepower. They have a really receivers running backs now jt has got knocked you know got hurt his hand in the game he was out came back after a, a series or, or so the two things i would point out is one first road game conference game for a true freshman quarterback and i think he was a little shaky but the biggest factor to me was stanford if you look they i think they have a really good secondary their linebackers are solid but the, the biggest concern going into the year with them was they lose harrison phillips and they had four guys on that defense who were playing in the NFL, but is the D-line. You know, a couple of years ago, they had Solomon Thomas, who was the best player in the Pac-12, and then Harrison Phillips was a dominant D-lineman. And there wasn't that difference maker up front. USC's O-line really has keeps underwhelming for so long, and they just did not look ready to handle. They got Toa Lobendon, who's the leader of offensive line back at center for that game, and they just struggled. They could not really get the run game cranked up. They struggled to protect JT Daniels. And I think that that hindered the fact that the receivers were didn't have much time to try to get open. You saw no big plays. Now, I think it's a little too early, I would say, for USC fans to push the panic button. Again, it's JT Daniels' first road start. I think there's a lot of stuff that he will get a lot better at 
much sooner than later. This is kind of what I expected from USC, to be honest. With you. I expected around eight and four. I thought this was a tough place for them to play. I didn't think USC's offense would struggle quite as much as it did against the Stanford defensive front, but it they did, and you know I was very impressed by what I saw from uh, from the Cardinal. Yeah, three points. Maybe I didn't see coming. And by the way, that was from Chris Benini's most interesting stats of the weekend. That was the fewest points USC has scored against anybody since 1997. But you know, you're, when you're putting all your eggs on a true freshman quarterback who, as we've now heard of a gazillion times, was supposed to be in high school still this season, that's risky. Also, do you think you know Sam Darnold got so much attention? Do you think people have underestimated or undersold? how important Ronald Jones was to that offense last season. No, I think I, I he's a really good running back, but they have really good running backs now. I think the, the, the bigger factor is when you mentioned Sam Darnold, I thought you were going with Sam Darnold covered up a bunch of flaws because Sam Darnold's bigger than JT Daniels. And he could make a lot of plays happen when things broke down. I think JT Daniels can make some plays happen when they break down, but I think, I think Sam Darnold covered up a lot of issues with the offensive line that I think we're going to see some more of them exposed with a, a fresh, true freshman quarterback being thrown into it. Remember, Sam Darnold had a year to acclimate as a red shirt, you know, so that I think gave him more time there. But again, I come back to the offensive line. That's the part I think that is a issue for USC more than anything else. Now I'm going to let you put on the USC fan hat. If you're a USC fan, how panicked or concerned would you be with with Clay Helton right now? I don't know why you're asking me. You're the guy who this summer said he wasn't one of your top 40 coaches in the country. <laughs> so that's, that's a good redirect. That, Thank that, you. that tells me that they, if you're correct, that yeah, they absolutely should be panicked. Uh, I don't know about panicked, but I understand why, for instance, maybe another coach who, who won 11 games uh, last season, what, 10 the year before, could could have an eight and four kind of rebuilding season and people not think much of it. Whereas if that does happen, there's going to be people calling for his head. And that tells you that he just didn't fully build up confidence the last couple of years. And I've said all along, it's because of the way they uh, got embarrassed in some of those marquee non-conference games like at Notre Dame last year and Alabama the year before. So uh, we'll see. I don't really understand how it got to this point where they've been so bad on the offensive line for a couple of years. Also, how does a school that has churned out one star quarterback after another end up in a situation where they didn't have somebody? They needed this guy to reclassify or they would be, I mean, imagine the position they would be in right now if he hadn't. You know, it's that bad at the quarterback position at USC. Well, I think some of it speaks to how talented JT Daniels is and just being around the USC program this past week and talking to people there. Everybody raves about, about this kid. So... I think that's positive that he came in. Like, there's been other top programs where some uh, true freshmen's come in and won the job just because he's more talented than the other guys. I mean, Jack Sears, who's a who's a uh, the number three guy, was a the third team quarterback. He was a really highly coveted quarterback that just ended up there. But it happens at schools. I mean, Stanford had no scholarship quarterbacks in the spring, healthy to go through because their their top two guys were injured and. Keller Chris moved on as a grad transfer, and there's plenty of examples where the depth chart gets really thin. So I, I wouldn't fault USC for that. I think what's a, what's a very delicate dynamic there, circling back to Helton, is 
Clay Holton's like USC's had so many O line coaches come through there in the last decade. That's not good for continuity at a position where it's critical to have that. The other piece of this is so Neil Calloway, who's the O line coach now, he's basically like a second father to Clay Helton. Clay Helton and Clay Helton will tell you that. So if it's underachieving and it's underwhelming there, I think that is challenging to to see how do you sort that out. Where is it good enough? And I don't I don't know. Again, I if I'm a USC fan, I think they will make a lot of strides over the course of the year, and I think they could at least be eight and four, and maybe nine and three. And a lot of best talent in the program right now, and this should be pointed out, they have three really good freshman slash sophomore defensive linemen. They have a true freshman linebacker, EA, God, I'm trying to pronounce his last name. It's like Nate Ote, they think is the next great USC linebacker. And he's close. He, he had a meniscus injury coming, you know, coming out of camp. And they think he's going to be a big-time star as they acclimate him in in the Pac-12 of the Pac-12 South. It looks like both of us whiffed on our preseason prediction in the state of Arizona. I think we each had Arizona and Kevin Sumlin going 9-3 and three and thinking that Herm Edwards would be a disaster at, at, at ASU. Neither one of us had him even make into a bowl game. And now they just beat a really good... Michigan State team that you had going eleven and one preseason, and they what what do we make of Arizona State right now? Were we all wrong I'm, about Herm? Were we all wrong? Are you on the bandwagon now? Not yet. <laughs> Not I, ta- I talked to we Herm. Were wrong. I we talked were, to we Herm. Wrong. Yeah, I talked to Herm Sunday morning. Look, two games into a tenure, you can't say, "Oh, we were wrong." This guy was a fantastic hire. You know, I remember getting crap from ASU fans that I had given a poor grade for the hiring of Todd Graham after he. Had some some good first couple years, then obviously it petered out from there. But I talked to Herm Edwards Sunday morning right after this big victory, and you know any notion that he just doesn't know what he's doing, I, I think we have to definitely say we were wrong about that. It was interesting. He said he was he left the stadium at twelve thirty in the morning, and he was back in the office by four thirty because he wanted to get a head start watching tape. Everything he talked about, there was a there was a pretty sound reasoning behind it. I will say, I said, you know, why does he have to get in there early and watch? Well, he doesn't want to slow down the assistants when they come in to watch tape. He wants to have already watched offense, defense, special teams, so he can give them their his critiques later that day. He said what they were doing was, you know, you've got 30, 35 guys who dress but don't play in the game, the developmental players as he called them. On Sundays, the the guys who played mostly just come in, get taped. You know, don't do any hitting or anything. But with the developmental guys, they take them over to a field and they and they do seven on seven and they coach them up. So there's there's a there's a reason behind everything he does. And look at the at the end of the day, whether Michigan State ends up being the team we thought they would be, the team I picked to win the Big Ten East or not, that was just a good good win for ASU. Down thirteen three heading into the fourth quarter, they shut down Michigan State. They make the comeback. Michigan State's a team you think of being one of the tougher, more physical teams in the country, and they beat them at their own game. So very impressed with that. As, tr- as for Arizona, I-, I will definitely own up to blowing that prediction. Uh, same here. They just look like they are not dialed in at all. It just looks like this is a program that right now is looks like it's in bad shape. You know, I know they had a bunch of walk-ons, and their offensive line is a mess, but it's still just don't have any answers for anything right now. And that's a, 
that'd be a big concern if I'm an Arizona fan. All of my, you know, and I'm saying, sure, same for you. All the reasons for being so high on Arizona began with Khalil Tate, and he has been anything but a Heisman contender so far. And I don't necessarily put that on him. He, the first week against BYU, it seemed like they forgot when they were making their game plan for the week that he's a good runner. He stayed in the pocket the whole time. Now, keep in mind, you've gone from Rich Rodriguez, who is all about the quarterback run, you know, whether it was Denard Robinson or Pat White. Now, it's cool. Like, he doesn't care if they run 25 times a game. I think with someone, and in particular with Noel Mazzoni as the offensive coordinator, he's more comfortable with stay in the pocket and throw the ball. So they admitted, someone admitted, hey, we, we messed that up. We need to have him be more of a runner in week two. And then what happens? Khalil Tate hurts his ankle on the first drive of the game. And basically, that gets taken off the table. Uh, they're down two key offensive linemen who started a lot of games. Their secondary is a mess. And Houston came out and just relentlessly attacked downfield. And we're up 31 nothing by halftime. So Arizona is 0-2. I haven't even started Pac-12 play yet. You know, And this is after, by the way, and I, I know that fans don't care about media access, but it was definitely an odd way to start his tenure there that Kevin Sumlin shut down the entire spring practice to the media as if they were back there working on something really cool and secretive. And this is what you have. We find out eight, nine months later that this is where things are at. So not good. Certainly if you're an ASU fan, it's time to be really excited. And if you're an Arizona fan, it's time to be really deflated. Uh, yeah. Hey, one game that caught my eye because I feel like doing a podcast with you and made me miss a pick here. I picked Duke to lose to Northwestern. Oh, yeah. If it weren't for me, you would have picked it the other way. <laughs> so apologies to Ben Humphreys, who is a lot more productive on the game on the game than Patty Fisher was. He's the other linebacker. I think he had like 20 tackles against Northwestern on the road. I bring that up because the Big Ten West did not have a great weekend, obviously. Northwestern losing at home to Duke didn't help. Purdue losing to a, to a MAC team. Eastern Michigan. Shout, sort of out to, shout out to Chris Creighton, huh? Yeah, that's a what a, what a job win. he's doing at Eastern Michigan. What a big win that was. Um, By the way, I think that's two in a row over the Big Ten for them. You say it wasn't a great weekend for the Big Ten West. However, also Iowa, won. Iowa. Iowa beat held Iowa State to three points. I was Iowa, a team I was fairly high on going into the season. Iowa has a really good defensive line, like really good, and. They've looked great their first two weeks, and they've got a Wisconsin coming there in two weeks. What do you think? Does Iowa end up stealing Wisconsin Thunder? It's entirely possible. I, there's an amazing stat about them where in the last five games against top five opponents who have to come into Kinnick Stadium, Iowa is 4-1. and one. Now, we know they just absolutely thumped Ohio State last year. Can they do it again against Wisconsin? We can get into that next week a little more. Hey, by the way, since uh, another bad prediction of you, I noticed that I <laughs> throw this in your All face. my predictions have been bad. <laughs> Mine have too. My, my record too. against the spread for two weeks, if I were a coach, I would be fired. So, you know, I don't know why you're singling certain ones out. I'm singling this one. I just I went back and looked at our bad predictions, and I realized you picked Maryland to go 2-10. and 10. Already 2-0, and oh. yeah. That was a product. Of, I was actually, that was a product of the moment. I think the scandal had just exploded you know, a couple days before our Big Ten predictions were due. So I thought, oh, you know, it's going to totally derail their season. I knew that they had really good running backs there. They have talent. 
we'll see how far it goes. But yeah, not going to go two and ten. Hey, I want to ask you about Jalen Hurts. There's been a lot of talk about whether Nick Saban would redshirt him. Jalen Hurts is going to graduate this winter, so he could leave as a grad transfer. And if he redshirts, would have two more seasons of eligibility. He could go somewhere in the spring and learn that team's offense. He played in a, they've had the tide has blown out two opponents. He played in the opener against Louisville, who was you know a respectable opponent, and then he pay, played this past weekend in a, in a game against Arkansas State where they just probably could have won by a hundred. Looks like he's probably going to not redshirt this year if he's playing in those games. I don't know if if that if you were going to do that. I just you know look. There's a reason, obviously, that Saban has been so testy about these questions. There's a lot going on behind the scenes. I don't think Saban would just step up and say to Jalen Hurts, "Hey, you know, I'm going to go ahead and take care of this for you and make sure you don't play more than four games." Now, could Jalen Hurts say that's what I want to do? Sure, but is that some if if that were something that were already decided, then yeah, you wouldn't use up one of his four games against Arkansas State. So I don't know. We'll see. It would be really crazy and a really interesting use of this new rule if he gets through week four and says, that's it, I'm shutting it down. Clearly, Tua is the guy. You know, maybe, you know, obviously, you don't go through with that if, it, if Tua ends up having some serious injury. But, of course, if he does that, you know, there's not going to be any sympathy in the state of Alabama for, for Jalen Hurts. It's all going to be, well, what a selfish teammate he is and I mean, he's going to get killed for it. So I kind of find it hard to believe that that's what he'll do. But we'll see. It's funny, in covering that, you know, in covering the build-up to that rule passing, right? It was about a year of Todd Berry from the AFCA working on that. The coaches were unanimously in support of it. Something they really, really wanted to pass. Oh, there! what possible unintended consequences could there be? Do you think they'll be having some buyer's remorse if it turns into a situation where your backup quarterback shuts it down after four games it's an you know it's an interesting like little subplot to that yeah i i hadn't really thought about how that could play out but again when you have a level of free agency that we have now that's something that's considered especially with players having more of a voice than they ever had before i mean keep in mind jalen hurts would have two years left so i don't think it's as big a deal but if you're somebody who is on to your down to your last season and you haven't redshirted yet you know, take Kelly Bryant. Now, it looks like Kelly Bryant is going to stay Clemson's main quarterback for the foreseeable future. But if Trevor Lawrence had come in and, and pulled Tua and just stolen that job right out from under him, you know, he's graduated already. He could say, all right, well, I don't want to spend my last year of college football as a backup, so I'm out. I'll see you, see you guys at some other school next year. It'd be fascinating. It'd be fascinating to see if it happens in, a, in any sort of high-profile quarterback situation. But, you know, Alabama's is the highest profile one. We'll be keeping an eye on that. I can't believe we've gone this far into the podcast without mentioning the historic event that took place in Gainesville, Florida on Saturday night. Kentucky beating the Florida Gators for the first time since 1986. And I gotta say, I didn't necessarily see that one coming. The end, or or the upshot of that game was everybody seeing that you know what, any notion that Dan Mullen was going to come in and turn this thing right around, go back to winning big games right away at Florida... Man, do they have a lot of issues. Like, the entire team is an issue. Well, look, it's, I think it's a bigger issue. Right now, if you were to rank teams in the state of Florida, I think UCF would be the number one team. The big three had a horrible week. At the UCF beginning of the would week, be the number one team, but here's a question. Would USF, would USF be number two? Be number two after beating Georgia Tech? I don't think so. I'm not 
Right? I think yeah. Miami is probably the number yeah, two Yeah, I'm not team. throwing the towel in on Miami just yet. But Florida and Florida State, let's talk about Florida State for a second. So, obviously embarrassed in the opener against Virginia Tech on Monday night. Turnaround Saturday, they could have lost to Sanford. I mean, they were losing that whole game up until the last five minutes when they scored two touchdowns. If they and had lost to Sanford, would Willie Taggart's tenure have ended right there? No, I don't think it would have tended, <laughs> or it would have ended, but um, it definitely would have had a lot of a lot more panic going on. Here's something even more crazy to me about the Florida State's completely dismal first couple weeks. The AP Top 25 came out, and somehow Florida State still got a Top 25 vote from somebody after week two. How is that possible? Did somebody not pay attention to the first two weeks of the season at all? Do we know who the voter is? You can, I mean, the, the ballots are public. I don't know who the voter is. I, I hope for that person's sake it was a just an accident where, look, you were an AP Top 25 voter for a couple of years. How often did you ever have one where you're like, ooh, boy, I, I, would, like to, I would like a mulligan on that one? Yes, but not, not, not something like that. I mean, you, and it's frankly one of the reasons I stopped doing the AP poll is we have enough to do on Saturdays. And, you know, like on Saturday night, I filed a, a story from the A&M game at like midnight or 1230 Central. Then I had to do the top 10 that we do for the site. You know, and, and after all that, after a dizzying day of college football, you turn around and try to put together this ballot to the best of your ability. And then I would always, or not always, but almost always have at least one, oh, this team, how can you possibly have this team out of this team when they lost to them or, you know, some sort of just logic flaw. So it, it wasn't worth it to me to keep trying to do that. But I don't remember ever having a, t- a team in that, that has looked as bad as Florida State has the first two weeks. Yeah. Uh, should there, you know, if you're a Florida fan, are you just going, okay, we've been backsliding anyway, and it's going to take Dan Mullen a while to get this sorted out? Or do you, like, how do you process seeing this streak that went on for decades Come crumbling down. Florida fans. And, it was, and it, there wasn't nothing fluky about it, by the way. It wasn't like, yeah. I mean, Kentucky was the better team. Florida fans and Texas fans to me are similar in that they render judgment on a coach pretty quickly, right? So Ron Zook, I feel like as soon as he lost his, had his first bad loss, he, he was never going to win back the favor there. You know, they were never all in on Muschamp, but certainly not McElwain. Uh, this is a bad one for Mullen to have to dig out of. I think you know, he can still certainly turn around and have a good season. They had a lot of guys missing on their defense in that game that will be back or should be back. But, uh, that, man, I can't imagine, you know, all the excitement over your return to Gainesville and in your first SEC game. You're the guy that lost to Kentucky for the first time in 31 years. You know, there was a similar kind of buzzkill in Nebraska, right? After all the buildup to Scott Frost, he gets his first game canceled. He loses to Colorado in his second game. But I don't think... That's anywhere near as... Uh, yeah, as I days. mean, look, to me, what's what's different there is your starting quarterback gets knocked out of the game and you're playing a walk-on. Also, Nebraska has stunk for a long time. It wasn't that long ago that Florida won back-to-back SEC's titles. But there was always a feeling of people still weren't fully on the bandwagon when they won those SEC's titles because the offense was still so bad. As we're recording this, Dan Mullen announces that Marco Wilson is out for the season with a torn ACL. So... That's a bad break for Florida. Man, there were a lot of really bad injuries this weekend. I mean, Oklahoma losing Rodney Anderson for the season, that's a big blow for the Sooners. It was, and this is the third major injury, season-ending injury Anderson's had in the last four years. I hate to see that for him, really do. 
couple other headliners of note. Horrible loss for, for Larry Fedora in North Carolina. They're now 0-2. They got blown out by East Carolina, where both coaches are on the hot seat. And certainly, I just think the temperature cranked up a lot higher on Larry Fedora. If you're North Carolina, it's one thing to lose at East Carolina. It's another thing to lose by three touchdowns. If you were to guess who which coach in the country is the most likely to not last the season, I would say Larry Fedora. Yeah, now I've always heard Bubba Cunningham, the AD, really likes him. But at this point, I mean, this that's is, a tough this spot to be. Yeah. East Carolina, by the way, lost their opener to NC AT&T. Not AT&T. North Carolina A&T. <laughs> not, not the telephone company. They didn't lose no, to the telephone company. They lost an FCS program in their state, and then they turned around and, and not just beat, but crushed the UNC Tar Heels. But another coach on the hot seat had a big, big win. That would Shout be out Beatty, to David Beatty. Yeah. Ending a streak there of like a thousand days or whatever. When was I mean, it's even probably longer than that. When was the last time they... 2009 like that on the road on it the was road. their first road win since 2009 somebody pointed out that the last time kansas won on the road the ipad hadn't been unveiled yet um, wow. instagram did not exist yet you know to, you think 2009 it doesn't seem that long ago but then you put it in those terms wow i want to just quickly tor- turn our attention toward this week if we if we can there are pretty much two big games that that stand out above all the others lsu auburn and Ohio State TCU, and I'm I'm really fascinated by Ohio State TCU for a lot of reasons. Uh, but you know, Ohio State has been absolutely dominant in its first two games. Dwayne Haskins looks great. Ari Wasserman keeps writing. This is the best passing game they've had since Troy Smith was there. But again, it you know you got to temper it a little bit when you're playing at home against Oregon State and Rutgers. This will be a lot different deal going to Jerry World against TCU, who I'm high on, but who also hasn't played anybody so far. Yeah, it's a, it's a good matchup here. Gary Patterson's as good a defensive as there is in college football. This is the last game that Urban Meyer will not coach for Ohio State this season. So, yeah, I'm fascinated by the matchup as well. It's it's not a – even though the game's in Texas, it's not going to be a TCU home game. I mean, it's – I would guess it might be like 50-50 crowd-wise. You got a prediction already for this one? You know, I predicted TCU before the season, and so I'm just going to stick with it. I'm just going to ride the Horned Frogs. Yeah, that was that was the same uh, thought process that got me into a, into a, into picking a team that would get beat by twenty four at home last week in the Georgia South South Carolina showdown. <laughs> still, I'm probably I, I don't know I'll, I'll probably be made to look like an idiot. I'm frankly more concerned for Ohio State for when Urban Meyer comes back and the disruption that that might have than I am this week. I mean, things have obviously been going very well with Ryan Day at the helm, but you just don't know. You don't know how teams going to respond when they go away from home. Uh, I think if there's one area. That I'm really curious about, you know, Ohio State scored 77 against Oregon State, so nobody nobody ever really looked twice about this, but they did give up a lot of big plays to Oregon. Oregon State had three touchdowns of, I believe, uh, one was a 49-yard pass, and there were 78, 80-yard runs. Is this the year? It's got to happen at some point. Is this the year that that secondary finally has a drop-off after losing you know, Denzel Ward, this off of last year's defense, uh, off of last year's secondary. The year before that, it was, I believe, three first-round picks off that second. They, they've just had to reload every single year. Is this the year where maybe Ohio State might be a little bit vulnerable? You can't wait to find out. In terms uh, of LSU-Auburn, I like Auburn. <laughs> Nothing's really changed there. That's not to take away from the great start LSU is off to. But Auburn is a team to me that, you know, I joked earlier about Alabama-Georgia, but... 
Auburn, to me, it looks like has only gotten better since last season. They were obviously right in the mix as well. Interesting matchups, too. Last year, Auburn dominated this game in Baton Rouge for the first half, and then LSU made some adjustments, and I don't know exactly what went on in the play calling with Auburn, but LSU ended up coming back to win. This is a road game. I think what you'll see is Auburn has probably outside of Clemson and maybe Ohio State the best defensive line group in the country, and they're going to go up against an LSU offensive line that really struggled against a really good group at Miami, and I think they will struggle this weekend on the road. One po- one positive for LSU so far has been Nick Brosette, who's had back-to-back 100-yard games. He was the big question. Yeah, I should not say he. The LSU run game was a big concern going in. I'd be surprised. If he goes over 100 yards again in this environment, I think LSU might pull a huge upset, but I don't think that's going to happen. I just think that uh, – I think LSU's offense is really going to struggle. This is going to be a big challenge for for Joe Burrow, the first road, real road game. I just think it's a, it's a tall order for them. Yeah, what Auburn has done is taken what was already the core of a, of a pretty good team for last season and added all of these track star freshmen who you know got to see more action last this past week uh, than they did, obviously, in the Washington game. And... Wow, there's a lot of speed on that team, a lot of speed on offense. We'll yeah, see. Yeah, Anthony, Anthony Schwartz is the guy I think you're referencing. He's oh, yeah. a Fort Lauderdale kid. He's the fa- he is the fastest player in college football. I mean, he has a real shot to make our next Olympic team as a sprinter. I mean, he's outrageously fast, and he's showing he's a, he's a good football player, too. And I think yeah, he's going to be a problem for, for SEC defenses this year. Can we, uh, can we get to a few mailbag questions? I believe we didn't do it last week. Can we do our shout-outs first and then do the mailbag? Yeah, well... I already shouted out David Beatty. I already shouted out Chris Creighton. But, yeah, you got another one? Yeah, I'm going to shout out Mike Bobo, former Georgia offensive coordinator. who's had a rough start at CSU this year. Lost their first two games. Really bad on defense. But Arkansas came in there, and the Colorado State Rams, they couldn't beat the Buffs. They couldn't beat Hawaii, but they could beat an SEC team. That's a good win for Colorado State. I think there were a lot of people who were kind of really uncomfortable with the direction of that the first couple of weeks of the season to come in and handle handle our, the Razorbacks not only I mean they outscored them 17 to nothing in the fourth quarter that's a big win for Mike Bobo on that program big win for Mike Bobo but wow how bad is Arkansas what a what an empty cupboard Fred Bielma must have left there look I didn't think they were going to be very good I got some flack from Arkansas fans and I feel a little more confident now after that i think they'll be lucky to win an sec game i really yeah okay you using colorado state gives me turned my brain to another school in the state of colorado and a shout out to a guy who through two games has been without question the best receiver in college football who nobody had heard of coming into this season although you had that is lavisca chenault did i say right yeah yes you did that is LaVisca Chenault, who has 21 catches for 388 yards and two touchdowns. I can't remember where I saw this, so I regret that I can't give proper credit, but Gary Barnett, the former Northwestern and Colorado coach who's now back as a, a radio analyst for Colorado games, said he is the best player that Colorado has had in the last 20 years. Uh, since this is a podcast you and I do, did you not read my column last week? I saw you tweet out. No, I, I read your column. I, I You really rushed to judgment there. Just because I gave the guy a, a wow doesn't mean I didn't read your column and, and know that Mike McIntyre... It sounded like Mike McIntyre wanted you to keep the hype under wraps, uh, let him sneak up on people. 
I tried to. Like, I, I had a subtle reference in him in my preseason Pac-12 predictions uh, that he was going to be the breakout player in the conference. Uh, but I would not give away all the stuff. Well, after he had like 11 catches in his first game, I'm like, okay, I can go with this. So I, you know, went back to the tape and went through all the stuff that they had told me. And uh, just so people know where this guy came from, he's 6'2", 220. He's a guy who runs in the four fours and they're lining him up all over the place. But he was actually a big enough recruit where Alabama, you know, had offered him. And so this kid came down to Alabama TCU, but ultimately said he wanted to get, get away from the heat and humidity in Texas. So he, he really liked Boulder and Colorado. So he's now a Colorado buff and he's going to be a problem for everybody in the PAC 12, just because they do so much with them and, and they line him up all over the place. And, and McIntyre, who's an old defensive coach said he could probably start at running back all the receiver positions. He could be a tight end. He could be an edge rusher. If he decided to let his body kind of, you know, grow to that. He could be a safety. He could be all the linebacker positions. I mean, he's one of those rare guys who could play just about anywhere with the possible exception of like interior line. Caught the game winning touchdown against Nebraska and credit to Steven Montez who put that throw right on the money down the sideline. But yeah, great catch there. Great player. Now can we do the mailbag? Yes, we can. Okay. As always, send your emails to the audible pod at gmail.com. Matthew Ryan says, why do ADs keep hiring retreats like Kevin Sumlin and Will Muschamp? You don't have to worry about them leaving because they've shown their ceiling is low. At least when you gamble on a coordinator, there is potential upside. You know, I think we both gave South Carolina a lot of flack when they hired Muschamp because he had kind of failed so spectacularly at Florida. Now you're hiring him back within the same conference. But I think we both thought Arizona made a good hire with Sumlin. Yeah, I look, it's... I think when you look at it and go, okay, there's probably a safer pick to hire the guy who's already been established and won somewhere. I think it's a it's a harder call where you can find plenty of examples of the first time head coach where it turned out to be a dud. And how do you ride the growing pain through that? I mean, as we said in the example of Charlie Weiss versus you know the the moral victory Charlie Weiss versus Jimbo Fisher, I have a lot more confidence Jimbo Fisher has won a national title as a head coach than we ever did with Charlie Weiss. And I think you, you see that with guys who won. I think in the case of Muschamp, you know, he 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 uh, it didn't work out at Florida. He got a, another good SEC job, not obviously as good, but that's some that's sometimes how it works. And, you know, these things are gambles, to be honest. You don't know how the fit is going to be. You don't know where that coach is also in his time in his life, or how he's going to do and with that given program. So I, I think there's no. There are almost no sure things. I think you would say there's a sure thing. If it's Nick Saban, you'd think if it's a sure thing, if it was Urban Meyer. I I thought Tom Herman to Texas was a sure thing. You know, and maybe it still will turn out that way. But right now, there's a lot of reason for skepticism. Oh, I meant to mention, you said something before the podcast came, before we started recording, that that I found um, surprising. After watching USC score three points against Stanford, you think they're going to win at Texas? I think they will. Look, Texas had their hands full last weekend against Tulsa. I mean, you saw, you've seen both those teams in person. You're probably the most in the best position of, of any person in the whole country to predict the winner of that game. Yeah, I'm going to lean with, with USC, assuming that their offensive line can hold up a little bit against Todd Orlando's defense. I don't know. I mean, it's a road game. Last year, Sam Ellinger almost beat Sam Darnold at the Coliseum. But 
I don't know. I was pretty impressed by JT Daniels, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go with USC. If that happens, and I'm not saying it won't, that's gonna be a real problem for Tom Herman to start the second season one and two to lose to an unimpressive USC team. And I'm not kidding. What Jimbo's got working in there at A and M, he's already recruiting at an exceptionally high level. I think it'll only get better. I'm not predicting national championships or anything like that, but it's certainly trending in the right direction there. So I don't want to say, I don't know. I, I kind of feel like it's a must win for Tom Herman to get, basically to get the critics off his back. Well, here's the other di- the other thing that, you know, unsaid in that is if they do lose that, they got TSU the next week. That is, that's probably the most talented team that they, they would have played in the first month. And, and then Oklahoma not long after that. Yeah, I mean, it's a steep uphill climb, but yeah, look, it's year two. Chris Delconti's the new AD. I don't think there's any concern in his head about, oh, I'm looking at other coaches right now. But uh, it's a valid point because the Jimbo fa- factor has definitely cranked up the heat some. James Birdsong says, hey, Bruce and Stu, my fellow LSU fans are quite upset following a sluggish 31 nothing win over southeastern Louisiana. I'm not pretending that I'm not concerned. 7 of 27 on third down is not great. But am I just nuts for throwing out an early performance against an in-state FCS school entirely that's wedged between two opponents ranked inside the top 10, especially when your team is very young and inexperienced? In other words, can you really read much of anything into a game against an FCS team? Not much. I mean, look, the offensive line definitely struggled. The right tackle, Bedora Traar, who was a big recruit for them out of JC, he did not have a good game at all. He was not the starter in week one, but Adrian McGee's out for another couple weeks. And against Auburn, that would be a bigger concern. The other issue that did happen in that game is Jacob Phillips, who's one of their better players on defensive linebacker. He got ejected for targeting, so I think he's going to miss the first half. That's not going to help. I don't know. I think you and I both think and thought thought going into this year and think going into this week that Auburn's going to win this game. Nothing nothing that would have happened last week would have changed my mind. Again, Southeast Louisiana, I think if – if LSU's passing game put up 340 yards and they were more efficient, I don't, you know, I think that would have bode, that would have probably boded well for the future. But I'm not sure that would have. I w- I still would have picked Auburn. Nothing that happened in that game would have had me thinking LSU is going to win this game. I just think that Auburn's better on the, the Auburn's D line to O line. I think they have the edge at quarterback, and the game is is at Auburn. To me. I think Auburn could win this game by double digits, and that's what I thought no matter what happened this past weekend. This is an interesting one from Johnny Shee. Hey, guys, love the podcast. Wish you would go for two each week like the old days. Sorry, Johnny, not feasible uh, with our respective schedules, but we certainly do enjoy doing it every week. All right, this is about fan bases. He wants to know which do we feel is the first to go into self-doubt or trashing their own team at the first sign of weakness and which one is the ultimate, everything is fine, we'll be okay fan base that thinks they're always about to turn the corner? Oh, I'll take B, the Aggies. Okay. That they're, not to say blindly optimistic, but they're always willing to buy in versus always willing to, to opt out? Yeah. I mean, how many times since, since Manziel have we been hearing out of College Station that, you know, well, but, I mean, you know, obviously in hindsight, whenever, the, whenever they do eventually fire the coach, then, all, then the, the critiques really come out, but I, I don't think that was the case in real time with Kevin Sumlin. They loved how he was recruiting. They loved the swag copter. They always thought they were just, ah, just, just right around the corner from, you know, being national prominence. And then Jimbo comes, 
and now it's almost a certainty. I mean, I, I, it's hard for me to properly describe the atmosphere inside that stadium Saturday night. It really was like they won the game. I mean, I'm look, I don't claim to know what all 105,000 people in that stadium thought. It just seemed like, I mean, there was a crushing way to lose. They come down, first of all, to have the touchdown, you know, the, what originally could have been the touchdown to cut it to 28-26, ruled a fumble out of the end zone and a touchback. Then they do cut it to 28-26, and the two-point conversion is intercepted, and that's the ball game. Just a, just a devastating way to lose. But it didn't seem like people were all that dejected. And like I said, it was a pretty telling moment. Jimbo Fisher's running off the field. He's, he's pissed. He's shaking his head in either frustration or anger because they lost the game. And fans are chanting his name as he runs off the field. So, yeah, I think that's the answer to B. A is a little tougher. First to go into self-doubt or trashing their own team at the first sign of weakness. We put Michigan or, or USC fans in there. And we talked about Florida and Texas. They seem to turn on these new coaches pretty quickly. And by the way, I assume this is different than, like I've always said, Cal fans are some of the most defeatist I've ever seen. Some of my fellow Northwestern alumni are like that, where they just always assume the worst. But you don't. Ha- but those programs don't have a you know a good history. That's why that is. Yeah. So I think that's different than this. I don't think it's Michigan first time. Self doubt or trashing their own team at the first sign of weakness. It could really, it could, you know, it's funny because of what I just said as my answer for B, but it could be Texas. I mean, after that Maryland game, they they were they were angry. Yeah, uh, look, I, I would say that's probably true, and I think some of it also was a reflection of how the media goes. I, I really think that's part of the deal too. Also, yeah, I am going to go with Texas, and also because of this, Mac Brown won a lot of games in his whatever, however many year run that was, especially in the 2000s. And yet, I remember him just getting killed whenever they would lose to Oklahoma. It's almost like the the, 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 the enduring, like, what is Mac Brown's legacy at Texas? Well, he had Vince Young and Colt McCoy. They, it's like those guys won all those games, not him. I, I think it's a, it's a very self-critical fan base. Fair enough. There were other good questions, but... We, they were about topics that we already discussed, like Clemson's def- worrisome defense and the A&M game and bigger implications for, for what for stuff. So, good question. Are USC fans crazy? We are about Clelton. We already addressed that, too. Send your still sent your emails for next week to theaudiblepod at gmail.com, and we'll see you next time. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to The Audible at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. We'd like to thank our producer, Nick Fink, and we'd like to thank Kevin and the Octaves for our intro song, Dangerous. You can download their music on iTunes or Spotify. If you haven't subscribed to The Athletic yet, what are you waiting for? Read both myself and Bruce and all our other great writers there. Go to theathletic.com slash theaudible and get 25% off. You can also follow our coverage at The Athletic CFB. You can follow me at SL Mandel, follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. We'll see you next time. Come on,